Welcome back to Take Two. I'm your host, Kamel, and I'm super excited to bring you this episode. Some of you may know that I work in the restaurant industry, and I'm no huge player in this industry, but I do know someone that is. Please welcome the man with the best taste buds in the city of Philadelphia, Craig Laban. First off, yeah. thank you so much for joining me. Um, it's I'm super privileged to be able to have you on here. I'm super excited to talk to you about Philadelphia, the restaurant industry, and everything sort of in between. Awesome. Let's do it. Yeah. So something I was interested in that I, I don't I don't know about you is sort of how you got started. Are you from Philly? How did you get here? How did you get started? Well, I'm not from Philadelphia. I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit and um, went to the University of Michigan. Um, and I was a French major so that I could basically live in France, in Paris for the rest of my life. I think that was, that was the game plan. And my initial interest was music. I was really into jazz and um, kind of promoting jazz music. And I felt Europe was a really great place to sort of be a part of an industry. And uh, that's when I went back to, um, to Europe after college. I sort of studied abroad in Paris and fell in love with that that lifestyle, they, such a beautiful city in Europe in general, and went back to uh, France after college and was sort of getting a little bit into the music business. And I started to write some freelance articles for some of the expatriate English speaking uh, uh, publications in Paris, just to earn a little money because it's it can be a little difficult to sort of have a job and earn, earn money in a foreign country. And that's that was an easy way to get started. I did no journalism in college, almost zero. Wow. had no idea this was in my future. I started writing about music and I really enjoyed it. And um, But then I needed something else to do. So I got a job as a translator at a bilingual cooking school in Paris. And I was interested in food. I really had no formal understanding of, of it. I hadn't really studied it. And this was my sort of, you know, gateway into the world of, of cooking and um, and I and I absolutely just fell in love with this this world of this art, this tradition, the culture. Uh, because you know, when you're in a place like France, you know, food is food is everywhere, and it's it's part of life in a way. I felt like it wasn't so obviously a part of the the sort of suburban American life I grew up in. So I was extremely stimulated and excited by it. Um, and the way it worked is I had a, I earned a culinary degree for in exchange for for my work. I was living there for about a year. Um, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, it was an amazing. I was like I really fell into this experience, um, and it was in Paris. But then it moved to this uh, chateau, this castle in northern Burgundy, for the last eight months of my time there. And um, so I've lived in a castle, and it's pretty <laughs> cool. And I yeah. learned, you know, I was really immersed in the world of cooking, um, and I learned a lot as I went through the classes with the paying students, and when they were off doing their balloon rides across Burgundy, um, those of us who were the stagiaire, the uh, the interns, uh, we would follow our own curriculum. So I earned my, my culinary degree over the course of that year. And kind of had two ways I could have gone at that moment. I could have continued cooking. You know, you just sort of go work for various mm -hmm. chefs from the schools, friends, and you you sort of find your way through a career. And and many of my friends did. Um, I really enjoyed writing. I just kind of discovered it. And so that's that's the direction I decided to put all my energies. And I did work in some restaurants as a young, you know, a young, you know, chef, just sort of you know, prep cook and doing all that stuff. And I certainly got a taste of what what it's about, but I decided to, you know, I was ready to sort of start from the bottom in journalism. So I moved back to the United States, uh, moved to Boston, where I uh, spent a year and a half as a freelancer working for everybody but the globe and realized that my my journalism background was very um, limited, uh, at least formally. And, and I really needed to sort of take another, to, to do this, I needed to take another step. So I went to graduate school so uh, at Columbia. Columbia, New York City. So, yeah. So when you were in Boston, what kind of were what kind of stories were you writing? Were you doing just like I was doing food stories, and this is really it back in 1992. Um, okay. And 
you know, at the time, you know, food writing was just emerging. I mean, it's nowhere near the as pervasive part of pop culture and mainstream culture as it is now. Um, but there were certainly, you know, Boston, Boston and Philadelphia share a lot of uh, similarities uh, in, in terms of char the character and the scope and size of their restaurant scenes. Uh, Philly's bigger, but, you know, Boston was really emerging with some exciting you know, cooks and some new ideas and some a great little restaurant scene was bubbling up. And so I wrote um, stories. I started writing restaurant reviews for Boston Magazine. I was doing like sort of their cheap eats column. They're less expensive restaurants. And I was also writing a column uh, for the Boston Tab and it was some things for the Phoenix. I was writing about, you know, the emergence of coffee culture. I was, you know, we go foraging, you know, mushrooms with a chef in the <laughs> woods. And, you know, it was really... Um, it was a lot of fun and it yeah. was the kind of thing, um, you know, that we do, we still do, but um, I still needed more. And I was, I was doing okay. I was, had a freelance, you know, career going on and I, I applied to um, graduate school sort of on a lark and I got in and I moved to New York city to go to graduate school for journalism for a year. And I really, it sort of crystallized. I had some instincts for journalism, but it really crystallized a lot of the more formal things you know, learning how to become a reporter yeah. and learning the ethics and standards and, and just the sort of conventions of how to work at a yeah. professional publication. That for me, because I didn't do that, in, you know, in high school or college, a lot of people did. That really helped me get on track and um, sort of understand that journalism was a career I wanted. And I want and I, I headed towards newspapers as sort of my path. I had written primarily for magazines before before uh, J school. So I, um, and then you do what you do when you get out of, out of uh, graduate school, you just start at the bottom and you work your way up. I worked for a little uh, twice weekly in Princeton called the Princeton Packet, writing, you know, covering yeah. school boards and levy boards and mm -hmm. planning boards and zoning boards and, you know, fruitcake competitions and exploding fire hydrants. And then, you know, I, then I got a job at the Inquirer as a suburban correspondent. Um, in the Cherry Hill Bureau, I covered the Pinelands and Fort Dix and Guerra Air Force Base for a year and a half, just learning how to be a reporter, to okay. be a journalist. And, um, and it was a stepping stone job, so that brought me then to New Orleans, to the Times-Picayune, yes, where I was a, uh, uh, started off in the East Jefferson Bureau again as just sort of, you know, uh, a general assignment reporter covering, covering a, a, an area, a, sort of a close suburb and close, in, you know, covering um, politics and culture. And when I was at the Times Picayune, about four months after I arrived, their restaurant critic left. And they started a search. And I was sort of at the right place at the right time. I had the right background and the right experience. And you could say I got lucky. You know, I yeah. got a really amazing yeah. opportunity to uh, step into sort of back into food writing, but in an absolutely magical place. I mean, New yeah. Orleans. New Orleans, as they would say, some some folks, uh, is such, you know, it was like being in Europe again because it was a place that was so in and of its own culture, mm -hmm. so steeped in its traditions and its and its and, and reveling in its own character mm -hmm. and its uniqueness. There is no place on earth like New Orleans. And yeah. um, as a journalist, it is it is paradise and as an outsider you're learning so much every day and you're also you know learning um budding and certainly it's even more difficult i think as a restaurant critic to sort of parachute in as an outsider mm -hmm. and to be able to write for an audience that that knows a whole lot more than you do about yeah. its cuisine and its restaurants and it was a real lesson um a crash course in uh, once again, sort of applying, I think the, the lessons you learn as you become mm -hmm. a journalist, become a journalist first, a reporter, you listen to the people around you, you, you study, you know, all these things. Um, yeah. and, and you trust, and then you also trust your own instincts as, as an eater and, and a cook mm -hmm. and a judge and somebody who's been around food. So, yeah, I was in New Orleans and that's where I came back to sort of food writing and restaurant criticism at, at a much higher sort of level in terms of expectations and pace. Working yeah. for a daily newspaper is, 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 uh, is a, it's demanding in terms of the pace and the, and the amount of material you generate. 
And I was there for a year and a half um, when the Inquirer's uh, restaurant critic um, spot opened up. And I guess once again, I was sort of well-placed because I had worked at the Inquirer. They knew who I was and I had, mm-hmm. it's a, it can be a challenging spot to sort of fill, to find the person who can sort of talk with authority about food, but also can work at a high level of journalism. And uh, I got lucky again. And um, I got this job um, a while ago. What year was that? That was 1998. 1998, okay. Yeah, 1998, March. It was really uh, phenomenal. We we were so happy to come back. I loved New Orleans, but if I could go back anywhere, it would be Philadelphia. Yeah, I was going to say, did you, yeah, did you, what made you want to come back to Philly um, to start writing again? Well, certainly it was the opportunity to write for the Philadelphia Inquirer was the driving was the mm-hmm. driving force. I wouldn't have come back without that opportunity. But we had lived here, my wife Elizabeth and I had lived here before for a year and a half. And we just really she's a New Yorker and we met in New York and you know, I lived all around at this point. I love the sort of urban uh, accessibility and sophistication of Philadelphia, but the scale of it. Um, this sort of human sort of personal scale mm-hmm. was so appealing. I mean, and I just felt like um, we loved living here. You know, we love the quality of life of Philadelphia. We love the people, you know, they're so real and they're so genuine, <laughs> sometimes rough around the edges, and, yeah. but embrace, embracing that. Uh, and there's a lot of pride um, in this town and, and we love being close to, you know, it's, it's so central. I just, often think people have no idea how great this town is no matter how much we say it yeah i I think so too so what do you think that the the restaurant culture and food culture how how is it what's the difference in between new orleans food culture and philadelphia's food culture what what would you say wow that's well you know again you new orleans is one of the unique places on earth in that it's its cuisine is still so steeped in the traditional roots of the people who settled there, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the confluence of sort of, yes, the, the Europeans and the French and the Spanish, and then, you know, the, the enslaved Africans who, who brought so much to that culture. And then you have the, the, the native Americans and then the Germans who brought all the smoked food things mm-hmm. and, you know, all this gumbo, truly a gumbo yeah. of history sort of swirling around. And it's very deeply imprinted on not just the menus, but the way people cook, the way people talk mm-hmm. about cooking. I mean, I never heard somebody give a direction to smother down something, you know, until <laughs> I was in New Orleans. I'm like, what is smothering down? And that is a culinary term in New Orleans. It means just kind of to braise something. A light with a little bit of liquid to so braise something down usually with the onions and the, the holy trinity of ingredients and there's you know so even as i was in new orleans um kind of in the middle of emerald Lagasse's sort of explosion onto american pop culture and he was a seminal character who, who was really kind of opening people's eyes to uh one of many but he was the most visible who showing people how to take a traditional food and kind of mm-hmm. broaden its horizons and update it, and modernize it and give it pizzazz. And, and, and sometimes it was way over the top. And as and I think he as a character kind of became a caricature right on TV, but he was always, he was at its root, a great chef. But I mean to say that New Orleans was having a bit of a, a modern awakening uh, at the time I was there. So it was really cool to see that and to see you know the other cultures that were weaving in you know the, there's a huge Vietnamese culture in, in, in New Orleans mm-hmm. uh, becoming you know more visible and you know I just it, it is of its place whereas you know Philadelphia is a cosmopolitan sort of north you know mid-Atlantic eastern seaboard town and I think that the, the traditions that that Philadelphia had um we're a little bit more deeply buried, you know, beneath um, the diversity of options that we have here, the modern yeah. restaurants at the time, Restaurant Row and Walnut Street was, boom, was starting to boom. And you had the Big Fan and Straight Bass and Susanna Fu and 
So there was definitely more of like a New Yorky kind of like modern modern world yeah. of life to Philadelphia, whereas New Orleans was was modernizing, but from a very traditional place. So okay, if you understand what I'm saying, you know, and my my journey over the last twenty years has has been sort of teasing out some of the um, authentic Philadelphia characters of what is Philadelphia food. You know, history yeah. evolves tremendously, you know, but we see, you know, such a melting pot of immigrant communities in Philadelphia um, mm -hmm. that enrich, enrich its flavors, you know, in South Philadelphia is like such a, uh, you know, a prism for that, you know, you see yeah. everybody think initially you would think, oh, well, the Italian market, the, you know, Italian red gravy tradition um, and that is so true because that that was like a hundred years in the making, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you have all, you know the Southeast Asian corridor along Washington Avenue, all the Vietnamese pho shops and um, and restaurants and markets, and then and then the last twenty years, we've seen the influx of of of, of Mexicans into South Philadelphia, who've completely transformed um, the neighborhood in the most thrilling, exciting way for me to see and see all those things kind of sort of dance around each other and sometimes easily, um, you know, and you, and you see all these different communities kind of coming and swirling in this tide pool of mm -hmm. interesting flavors, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, when I, like, when I think of Philadelphia food culture as compared mm -hmm. to like New Orleans, cause I never even thought about New Orleans food culture like that. What I do know is like everyone, that I know that goes to New Orleans, one thing that they have to do is like try the food. Of Whereas course. in in Philadelphia, I could see what you're saying. Like the the food culture is very different. Um, as opposed to that, I feel like definitely there is definitely tradition in New Orleans. And I guess what the question in my head now is: What is Philadelphia food culture? And is there really like a a are we still building that food culture now? Um, I would say absolutely. And, and I think when, you know, there are some obvious things of Philadelphia food culture, you know, cheesesteaks and hokies and pretzels and all the kind of sort of the cliched stuff. And I think we Philadelphians have long kind of wanted to, I mean, many Philadelphians have long wanted to sort of say, hey, we're much more than that. And we certainly mm -hmm. are. But um, I think there's no shame in embracing the fact that we are one of the great sandwich cultures in America. Yeah. I mean, you know, but you know, everything on a long roll, that's a Philly style that thing. Like the hokey <laughs> and steak and all those things in the last 10 years have continued to sort of evolve and be perfected and, you know, become this sort of show place for different flavors or updates or whatever. And you know, I look at you know, Oban Me and all these things. We, we love our sandwiches, and there's that's definitely a reflection of our blue collar roots as a city. Yeah. Um, but I think you know, I I've often characterized Philadelphia less by specific dishes. I mean, and then of course you you have the traditional traditional dishes like the pepper pot soup and the fried oysters and chicken salad that have their roots in the fish the old fish houses. Of Philadelphia, you know, and those traditions are very long and deep and they've almost disappeared. And that concerns me. Like, so basically, you have the oyster houses on, mm -hmm. on Sansom Street, you know, but once there were bookbinders and snackies and like dozens and dozens of these sort of oyster house saloons where you'd have sort of traditional fare, but like pepper pot soup, right? Of course, has its roots in the Caribbean um, communities of colonial Philadelphia and the slave communities that would go out and sell sell soups uh, mm -hmm. to earn money um or the, and um it's very interesting you know we have so many roots in, in our cuisine that are sort of dissipating and, and disappearing and i feel like there's this movement to sort of recover um some of these flavors some of these historical flavors mm -hmm. but i guess what i was getting at is, is for me philadelphia is more of a a feeling um this sort of excise the scale that i'm talking about this urban accessibility of these small your typical philadelphia restaurant for me you know pre-pandemic would have been the 35 seat byob right yeah the neighborhood yeah. spot with an owner operator um maybe a couple 
you know, somebody be cooking, somebody be out front. And it's very personal, sort of these neighborhood restaurants that help define neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, that would often, you know, be for me this feeling of being in in Philadelphia. Uh, it's unlike, you know, you're getting this incredible food on this level, uh, whereas in New York, and but, but there's this personal level to the service and the interaction with the owner between the owners and the customers that they know each other, you know, in a way that you, you never get in New York city at all. It's like an incredibly impersonal uh, dining experience. My, my, my meals in New York have always had this sort of like, you know, stand in line, you're just a number. And, you know, (laughs) I think Philadelphia is like, has this sort of personal kind of interaction that's always defined its restaurants from the days of the restaurant Renaissance in the seventies, in the early seventies, moving forward. That's of course, yeah, you know, Stephen Starr has had an incredible, incredible impact on the city as well. Yeah, that's been something that I've really appreciated by following you on social media is that I can really find the smaller mom and pop like restaurants um, that are within, I, I would say, the communities and yeah. not necessarily right downtown in Center City, um, yeah. which I think is a really large part of like the culture of Philadelphia and its neighborhoods for sure. Has there, has there been any restaurants, um, I would say pre COVID really that opened up and really changed the culture of the restaurant industry? Wow. Um, yeah, sure. Like, and my mind has been so consumed by COVID. I'm just trying to remember the days, um, you know, there have been, you know, again, you know, the places that change the industry in different ways. I mean, you know, I st- when I started 23 years ago, Stephen Starr was really getting his start. I mean, Budokan was one of the first restaurants I reviewed when it opened. Um, and the, the launching of this enormous sort of uh, restaurant group, which uh, established um, a tone and an ambition and uh, like, like, the dining out as entertainment uh, was a really huge contribution, but also sort of this massive employer that um, I think has had a tradition of being fairly professional, you know, about 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 opening, um, uh, you know, has has sort of sent you know thousands, you know, hundreds if not thousands of you know professional restaurant people into the world to do their own often to do their own thing so when we talk about restaurants as being influential sometimes it's yeah they're popular like you know when some of these big restaurants are popular and people love them but um they don't get imitated so much as like they they contribute you know to the workforce that goes off into making great restaurants but we've had other restaurant groups that have had that kind of impact like well Zahav has obviously been a tremendous um influence on so many, so many things. And, you know, in a way, Zahav descended from uh, the Mark Vetri restaurant group, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you, you take a place like Osteria, which was like one of the first restaurants of this new generation to do live fire cooking, right? Uh, and fresh pasta, extruded pasta. Well, now everybody's got live fire and extruded pasta and all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Zahav, which, you know, Michael Salamana worked, worked for Vetri before he went off uh, and paired with Stephen Cook. And they helped sort of set another, a new tone. Again, once again, it's a tone of this, um, it was a casual kind of atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Um, It sort of broke the hold of, you know, these formality that you had on Walnut Street of fine dining, this shift away from, you know, into sort of these more exciting kind of, transporting experiences that were really about the food and the atmosphere and not so much about the fussiness. So Zahav, which has been recognized as, you know, one of the nation's great restaurants doing modern Israeli food, um, you know, initially they they were wearing like t-shirts and like jeans and like, Mm -hmm. it's just like, but it was, you know, the food and the excitement was there. And it set a tone that a lot of people, again, it's like an elusive sort of, um, concept but a lot of people were trying to replicate that there were Mm -hmm. restaurants like standard tap that you know was the first gastropub in philadelphia you know helped launch the beer revolution Um, and this notion of the neighborhood bar that does more than just cook burgers and does much more interesting foods and 
every there's sort of the care and interest to like every aspect of what they do, um, you know, and they help launch, you know, Northern Liberties, and then Johnny Brenda's helped launch Fishtown, you know. Mm-hmm. So these, you see, you see restaurants as kind of bellwethers that set um, that open people's eyes to to neighborhoods in different ways. I mean, these neighborhoods all existed before, but as you know, you know, Philadelphia is in dramatic transformation in, mm-hmm. in terms of how ne- neighborhoods evolve and restaurants are often sort of harbingers of that change in good and bad ways, right? Yeah. You, you know, so it's yeah, difficult sometimes to articulate but all the sides of the of the, the impact of these things. Mm-hmm. So when you're going out to go review these restaurants, what do you what do you look at the most? I mean, I think in Philadelphia, we're like the experience um, plays a huge part in in the dining experience. I would say here in Philadelphia, you're immersed sort of in a different culture um, while you're experiencing the food. What what do you what goes into your reviews when you're writing for the Enquirer? Well, you know, I I, I sort of believe every restaurant has a different story to tell and if you're giving it a close look and you know traditionally you know pre-pandemic you know everything's been kind of on hold for a year in terms of our formal ways of looking at restaurants in terms of you know when I would go and give us a full rated review in the Sunday paper those have always were always the result of two to three visits um which were um you tend to be anonymous. Certainly, you're unannounced, and we always pay for all our own food. Um, and I bring multiple guests, and then the goal is to sort of try to approximate, you know, what a regular diner would experience, and also take a, a deep cut into a, a cross section of what a restaurant can do in terms of its its food. So for me, certainly, the food is the starting place. Mm-hmm. Um, if if a restaurant has bad food but a great ambiance, they're not going to get a good review. Okay. Uh, if it has good food and so-so ambiance, I can still really recommend a place uh, because I think I do think that you know food some some is is where the heart and soul of of any restaurant begins. Mm-hmm. But then you know often what I do is is in, we're starting from a pretty high standard in Philadelphia. So I like to think sometimes that I'm not telling people whether the place is good or bad. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you how good it is. Is it good? Is it great? Is it exceptional? Is it magical? Mm-hmm. In those levels, um, that's where things like um, the overall experience, like like the ambiance and the service mm-hmm. um, and the context um, can start to sort of separate you know, the layers uh, for me in terms of, of specialness, you know, or how much I like a place. Um, I mean, services, you know, we're talking about the hospitality industry and services is really important. Yeah. I mean, more important than uh, ambiance for me. It's like food service than, you know, the, the other parts of the experience. But again, this is just in theory, you know, every restaurant has its own story to tell. Like I said, you walk in there, try to let it wash over you, you know, you open your senses and you open your ears and eyes and you become a reporter and you taste and you take notes. And, and, and then I do interviews afterwards uh, over the phone with everybody that I write about to sort of learn a little bit more about their story and where they're coming from and what it's about, you know, how they cook things. Yeah. Um, and then all that information just sort of goes through this funnel in my brain and comes out as a story somehow <laughs> every week I don't know how it works but it <laughs> has there been a restaurant um that you thought the food was great but the experience was not that great um and vice versa where the experience is great but the food not so much I'm sure I mean those those things happen and 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 honestly one particular place doesn't does particular places don't pop to mind mm-hmm. uh, but y- you know you can always you can always find some things that are most likely usually recommendable but you know my job is not really to always recommend places it's to sort mm-hmm. of give a realistic sense of 
you know, if you're curious about this spot, is it worth, one, is it worth going to? And two, if, you, if it is, what should I get when I go there? And I'm really trying to help people spend their, spend their money well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, the most important thing is to tell the truth and not to oversell a place or you can really get carried away sometimes with praise and, uh, you know, create unrealistic expectations. But um, sure, I mean, there, there are, there are restaurants that I do think uh, a good job of setting a scene and a, and a vibe and they're kind of pleasant to be with. And I, the food just never does that much for me, but like, I know people like to go there because it's just fun. Um, but I just, on the other hand, I just think Philadelphia is so rich and there's so many alternatives um, that, you know, you can always eat well in Philadelphia. You know, yeah. and, and we are learning this now during COVID, you know, when when restaurants many for much of this year have been stripped of the, all the, the experience and the niceties and the finery uh, and are just down to the takeout. Right. Or and yeah. you have the interaction of the food and you uh, and 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 also maybe the little bit of the interaction and the logistics of how they handle their business. Um and I'm still finding, I still see heart and soul when I open up those take takeout boxes and take a bite. Yeah. I find it, I find it to be inspiring. You know, people are surviving right now. They're doing what they can. But I taste some great, I've had some great meals. Um, and I miss the, the restaurant experience so much. Um, I miss going out and just the relaxation and the sort of the views of the people. Um, but um Take out the heart and soul is still there and it's it is in the food it's in the flavors are there any places that you um recommend i would say that had really great takeout oh geez sure i mean i just did a i just did a big uh takeout piece this last um this last week um and there were you know nine nine restaurants in that list um as and uh, and that list was it, there's so many you know obviously that you can choose from. This list was um, centered around sort of international flavors, and I uh, did take out from this great Venezuelan spot on Spring Garden called Sazon. Mm-hmm. So they're doing a um, Venezuelan food, but also some extraordinary uh, bean de bar chocolates that turn into mm-hmm. bars. There's um, you know, uh, a cool little Mexican pizzeria, a pizzeria with a Mexican twist in South Philly called Chiquitas that I didn't take out. They made a, um, they do pizzas, but topped with Mexican, like stuff you put on tacos, like chicken mole or de pollo or um, uh, carnitas. They do a carnitas cheesesteak, by the way. I got a stromboli stuffed with al pastor, and that was really great. Um, there's an Indian spot in, um, I love, you know, I I have many versions of this list because there's so many great restaurants. <laughs> but, um, Indi- an Indian spot at the back of a market in West Philly called Danamandi, which has long been one of my favorite sort of value spots and sort of hidden gems because it's literally at the back of a market. And they do Punjabi sort of Northern Indian, but very spicy, fully flavored Indian food for delivery. That's quite excellent. Uh, many Mexican restaurants uh, adore um, so many to choose from in South Philly, but there's a new one um, just north of Spring Garden or just north of Cali Hill called El Purepecha, which um, is another restaurant that moved from a little corner spot into a larger space. They're doing a good job. I did Korean food from Surabol in Center City. Uh, that's Chris Cho's place. I did a reggae, reggae vibes, uh, Jamaican spot on um, Girard. It's called Reggae Reggae Vibes. It's on uh, Spring Garden at, where is it? Uh, Fifth and Spring, uh, Sixth and Spring Garden, right on the corner. Um, I thought their jerk was pretty good. Uh, And the brown stewed chicken was excellent. And the oxtails were great. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, but I've done plenty of takeout from, there's a Caribbean spot in West Philly called Brown Sugar Bakery, a Trinidadian bakery. They do all their own patties and stuff like that. And plus they have Villa de Roma's on this list, the classic uh, Italian from South Philly. Uh, Rachada is a uh, Northern Thai Lao spot on you know, Washington Avenue. 
Kalaya, of course, is like the best Thai restaurant in all of Philadelphia. It was just nominated as one of the best new restaurants in America by the Beard Awards. Their yeah. their their takeout's phenomenal. <laughs> um, I mean, there's sushi. I mean, there's sushi, Royal Sushi, the best sushi spot in Philly, and they've transitioned to doing only takeout because a lot of these restaurants do not want to be open. Yeah, they don't even if they could. I mean, many restaurants are really can't wait until the dining room's open again. I don't blame them because it's a lot of business they're losing. But there are a lot of restaurateurs who've decided that um, they don't want to be open because they don't feel safe sharing indoor spaces while yeah. this virus yeah. is still around. And um, Royal Sushi is one of those. Uh, Royal Izakaya is it's the same place um, on Second uh, Street, uh, Queen Village. They never they never reopened uh, the dining room, so they're doing these takeout. And he's he does he does this huge takeout order for the Eagles every every week, and he's really wow. uh, he's he's one of my four <laughs> bell restaurants actually, and it's extraordinary sushi. It's very expensive, but you get what you pay for with sushi. So, so that's a that's a short list, and that's just from this week, Camille. If you look, we have I've been writing about takeout for during the whole pandemic, and mm-hmm. another Lao place I love called Yanchen Cafe there in West Philly and in Kensington. Um, so everywhere you look in Philadelphia, there is great, great food. And I find myself constantly reminding myself to, wow, I haven't been in this neighborhood in a long time and in that neighborhood in a long time. Is there so, during the pandemic, I'm definitely, yeah. the circumference, or the radius, I should say, of travel has shrunk a little bit because I'm doing takeout. Sometimes it's a drag to do takeout from even a great place and have to drive 30 minutes to get home i just was up in northeast philly this weekend uh, a, a really great uzbek restaurant called shish kebab palace and we did we drove it half an hour back kebabs and, and lamb pilaf and all these things it was so good and the car smells so great on the way home you know but then you have to heat it up when you get home it's it's not quite the same but yeah um, you know so i i definitely uh miss um extending the full radius of our, you know, our coverage zone. So these smaller places, you know, like the one that's all the way in Northeast, how do you find these places? Well, the old fashioned way you go driving around and you say, Hey, I haven't seen that spot. And uh, literally I did, um, I did a big Northeast package. You know, I've been doing this for a while. So I've, I've covered a lot of ground over the years, but uh, I'd say, Maybe five, six years ago, I um, I sometimes will will do these big packages of like, let's take a look at a neighborhood, and I realized that Northeast Philadelphia is a, a very undercovered uh, neighborhood in Philadelphia for not just food but for all kinds of news. That's not I was, crime. yeah, I was I was gonna say yeah, not just food. I f- I f- I never thought of that. I mean, I I think the same thing. Like Northeast isn't really talked about that much. No, but with a third of the city lives there. And I sort of realized that, you know, at the time, say, say in 15 or 16 years, I'd like, I had not formally reviewed, you know, the, the rated Sunday review of, you could count on, on one hand and probably just a few fingers. And I was really, frankly, embarrassed at myself. And um, I said, I'm going to, you know, go and like really explore this neighborhood. And Northeast Philly is sort of, I sort of liken it to our Queens, you know, at this point, you know, South Philly, of course, has plenty of immigrants, but Northeast Philly is really where an incredible diversity of new arrivals to the city have settled and they all have restaurants that serve their community. Yeah. And I found it very, I did a big Northeast package. I think I went to 50 or 60 restaurants up there to sort of really get the scope of what's going on. And there was no, because no, I wasn't just the inquiry. It was like really no major uh, publication had done a lot of coverage to to sort of on the ground level uh, restaurants. So one, I talked to people and say, hey, if you're, you know, call a lot of friends who live in different places. And I asked people and I asked people and I asked people. But then you just sort of drive around. And like, you know, I was going down, you know, if you go up to the Franklin Mills, not Franklin Mills Mall, to the uh, uh, Roosevelt Mall, um, of Cotton and, and the Boulevard. Okay. And you, yeah. and you head south on Castor Avenue, um, or you head south on Bustleton, and you're like, whoa, what are all these Chinese restaurants? There's suddenly a mini Chinatown up there, and then suddenly there's all these Brazilian restaurants. And, mm-hmm. you know, 
I started just, I set an afternoon aside and I went to two or three or four of them. I mean, I just went in and you know, had a meal and took a lot of takeout and, <laughs> and I did it over and over again until, and then, so, you know, and you, you go into all the different corners of the Northeast and I found all these, um, when I say I found, I mean, these places existed. I, I brought myself to these spots and, you know, got a chance to sort of interact with the food and the people and kind of find out a little bit more about them. And then you have this huge picture and then there's this South Indian community from, from Carla up there too. And, there, and that was, you know, nobody was cooking Carlese food, you know, outside of this little pocket in Northeast Philly for a while. And they had their own markets and, uh, and of course the Russian and the Uzbek and the, um, and the Georgian places. And it's really thrilling. Um, if you, if you like to experience flavors that are from around the world. Um, so yeah, it, it's the fun part. It's absolutely the fun part of the job, getting yeah. out to explore um, places you haven't been or, or talk to people who, you know, can tell you where to go. And even just, even just, it was a funny experience. Even the classic old school uh, diners in Northeast Philly. And if you, you can go back and you can read the story one day, but this is where I started. I was at the Mayfair Diner which is one of the classic old school 50s diners from in Northeast Philly. And I was sitting there talking to a fellow at, at the counter next to me. And somehow, um, you know, I eat kind of incognito. I don't really tell people who I am. Mm -hmm. And somehow uh, the waitress behind the counter heard us talking about the Inquirer. She says, the Inquirer? Um, she, and she, she found out that I worked at the Inquirer just from the conversation, but she didn't know who I was. She says, do you know that Craig Laban? I don't like him one bit. He would never come to a place like this. He's too snotty. <laughs> and there I was eating in her spot. I thought, this is, he's so right. Um, in, in that, not that I'm snotty, but like, I, I haven't gone to those places. And, um, and, it, and I deserve, I deserve the skepticism, I think, um, based on that track record. But it's also a lesson that we have such a large community to cover and um and there's so many places yes you can only really know these spots by going you know we travel through instagram now we travel yeah. through social media and there's there's a lot you can you can tease you can surely glimpses of places that you want to put on your list but there is still no replacement for going somewhere so do you when you do go to uh, these restaurants, um, you are incognito. But do you notice when people notice who you are? Of course, you do. You do. And there's no, you know, again, I've been doing this long enough. It's a small enough town that um, sometimes I'll get 15 minutes at a place that feel pure. You know, that feel like, you know, they've given me the wrong table. Um, which I just, in, in my heart, I'm like, yes, they don't know I'm here. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> and then they do, and they're like, would you like to move to a nicer table? And I'm like, yeah, um, Or they switch servers, uh, or you feel the glances. It's uncomfortable um, because even if they do know who I am, I think people, excuse me, sorry, people need to know um, I don't want special treatment. I certainly I don't accept free food. And I don't like being fussed over. I just would rather just experience, try to experience a place in its most natural um, way, because you know that's that's what you want to portray to people what what, what they're going to find. That's mm -hmm. and it can be difficult. I would say you know, and I've always been honest about it. There's unless you're going to get plastic surgery on a regular basis, there's really no way you can disguise yourself effectively uh, as frequently as somebody who's you know a professional goes out to eat. So, you know, do you think that, that's, that's unavoidable? Do you feel pressured um, when you do go to these restaurants or you are writing these reviews? Pressured to do what? Um, I would say like your, like your review holds a lot of weight, um, yeah. especially within the city. Like, so, do you feel that pressure or, or just generally, like how do you feel that your review will hold a lot of weight for some, for some of these restaurants? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And, and it's evolving, you know, the, the, um, the weight that a, a one reviewer's um, article carries has 
probably diminished greatly and consistently over the years as um, social media kind of begun begins to sort of be more influential. You know, for a while it was the Zagat Guide that was like the first sort of people's, people's choice, and then it was Yelp, right? And Yelp was still kind of important as like I think of it as like a phone phone book kind of you know. Uh, a little barometer of what the world thinks of something, um, but ultimately, um, I know I know that people still read read what the Inquirer writes, uh, one way or the other, online Inquirer.com or in the Sunday paper. It still has as much reach as any any piece of sort of me media does in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm aware that they're well viewed, well well viewed, but the pressure that I feel is primarily uh, how it lands with my readers. And this is the most important thing. I have no personal relationship with the people I cover. I avoid that as much as possible. I'm not friends with anybody I cover. My allegiance is 100% to my readers. Uh, because when I write something and I'm telling them to go to some restaurant that's a fairly upscale, you know, big deal restaurant, for two people, I'm sending them off on a, you know, between the, the babysitting and the parking and the... Uh, mm -hmm other in the meal, you know, I'm sending them off on a two, three, four, five hundred dollar adventure. Mm -hmm. I mean, in many cases, you're not always, but that's that's kind of kind of what you're looking at. And and uh, that's a huge responsibility to be spending other people's money like that. And you multiply yeah. that by seven hundred and fifty thousand eyes on a Sunday. Um so that's your you know, you have to take that, you have to sort of treat everyone so that that means that I treat everyone the same with the same process at least uh you know the same fairness you know we spend our own money um, yeah you know so you, if you make it a level playing field as much as possible for everybody um and then you realize that you know the ones you have to i'm not soothe you know i don't write to to sort of make anybody feel good or bad uh, on the other side of things it's really a trying to convey an experience yeah, and, and I think but, um, yeah. from a journalism uh, perspective, yeah. like from a journalism perspective, it is like you're writing for the people. You're not writing for, I mean, you know, for the best interests of the people, I would yeah. say. For the, you know, you know and, and that's how it should work. You know, that said, I'm, I'm keenly aware of the impact of these reviews on businesses as well. And, and I just think it's, and I respect the people I write so much because I know how much hard work goes into making a restaurant and I know how difficult it can be. Uh, but I think everybody's sort of in the same boat, right? Mm -hmm. You know, everybody who does that has that challenge when they get into this business. Yeah. But I, I try to, um, I don't think I ever write from, from a perspective of meanness or just to get a gag to make people laugh at the expense of somebody. Um, and that's just not my, some people do, you know. You, yeah. read, you read the British the British reviews, it's like the sport is how how creatively <laughs> nasty you can be about a dish. And it's not really like my thing, you know, uh, but uh, you do want to entertain people. That's part of journalism, you know, you're trying yeah. to keep people's attention and make it interesting. Uh, I think there's a lot of ways to do that. And but, if any. If anything, you are, I mean, when you're writing these reviews, showing these people that own these restaurants how they can improve on their restaurant. I, I think some people take it that way and some people don't. Um, <laughs> I don't write them as, you know, like they're not little consulting reports where I'm trying to, I, I do often see, you know, things that could be better, you yeah. know, and that's sometimes that's part, that's part of the criticism. Uh, or in, in, in addition, if you if you have if you're going to criticize a restaurant for something, I don't just leave it there. I sort of explain. I try to explain at least in a little bit of detail what what that's about. So it's not really just a capricious, you know, wave waving somebody off for no reason. You know, it's I me. Mean, there's there has to be context sometimes to the to the criticisms. But you know, in many cases, it's it's well. It's well earned. There have been there have been some very high profile, very expensive and highly anticipated places that did not live up to expectations. And those articles, I think, are important uh, mm -hmm. to have a voice that's independent, um, sharing um, some truth. Yeah, I mean, 
Because why would I, why would I want to spend so much money on something that is not even worth it? You know, in addition, I've often, I often feel like as a a city that wants to be taken seriously as a restaurant town, it's important to have a a, um, real standards, you know, Mm -hmm. you set standards for, for what's good and bad in the restaurants and, and, and they have to live up to it. And many, and enough of our restaurants do that. I think it's fair. It's, it's fair game. You know, as long as we treat everybody with the same sort of uh, process and respect. And, 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 you know, over time, I think, I think I've done that. You know, I think people understand that about me. But yeah. So it still hurts if you're, I know if you're, if you're putting your heart and soul into something and it doesn't work out <laughs> uh, in print, I, I understand that's, that's not fun. And it's, and it can be, it can be very painful. Yeah. Um, so, now we're in a pandemic things have changed i think i mean the restaurant industry has changed so much obviously here in philadelphia it's changed a lot but next week we may be going into indoor dining that's a rumor um, i've heard that i have heard that um not a rumor it's been reported it's been reported um will you be dining inside no time soon no um, not until I get a vaccine. Not I see it's good. coming. I see it's coming down the road. Who knows when that'll happen? I, I think I've made it through this year um, between outdoor dining and in and uh, takeout. Uh, we're still able to convey these stories. I just don't think we can get back to normal until until there's actively you know vaccinations going on and we feel like this community is kind of getting what it needs. Um, I don't see any reason. It, it feels unsafe to me. Um, mm-hmm. And we've been awfully tempted, not just by indoor dining, but you know, outdoor dining that like it's basically an indoor dining room on the sidewalk with like four walls and like heaters and no spacing between the tables, and it looks so cozy. And like maybe if we sit by the door and like we're like no, uh, it's not safe. You don't. This is an invisible killer. This virus and you floating around in the air. Um, and I see no reason to put ourselves at risk when when there should be a vaccine available within the next few months. Yeah. Do you think the fight for restaurant industry should be they need more support from the government? Absolutely. Instead of not opening, you know, indoors. I mean, I think that's always been my thought is that we need more support from the government instead of opening up. You know, we talked, we first, I first reached out to you for a story I did and Mm -hmm. I don't know, was it June or May or yeah. Oh, it might have been March. I mean, I don't remember. It was, it was a while ago. Of, well, we were talking about government assistance and trying to get that government, that first sort of wave. Um, and we're still talking about it. And, yeah. And it's been, listen, you know, with everything that's going on in this country right now, this week, uh, we're talking about insurrections. We're talking about coup d'etats. The height of government mis- malfunction, dysfunction, um, the fact that they have failed on every level to support small businesses and especially mm-hmm. the hospitality industry is it's just part of this bigger picture that um, we need to get to the next administration with a Senate that is going to be on board with that kind of agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be too late for so many people yeah. um, who've lost everything, uh, who got sick, who lost their businesses, who lost their employees. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, if, if there has to be an understanding of it's a macroeconomic discussion of if you support an industry, um, what are the ripple effect, the positive ripple effects, you know, of, of investing in that? And they would have been tremendous. And I just worry it's going to be too late. Um, and we're going to have to rebuild from a much deeper hole than we could have been rebuilding from. Uh, because there's going to be a lot of rebuilding. You know, you're talking about when are people going to be willing to go back inside? Yeah. It's going to be a long time because I think people are traumatized by this. Our behavior has been altered. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. I do, think... do, don't you just sometimes just like watch movies on Netflix or whatever and you see all these people in a, in a crowded bar and you think, wow, it was so weird to see those yeah. people. They're not afraid of being near each other. Yeah anything that i watch movies in general i'm just like people just together i'm like how are they doing that 
Like, what is happening? (laughs) Um, It's going to be a while, I think, before people do recover. But, you know, we've been writing this all along. You know, there's talk about the Restaurants Act or a a new sort of coronavirus aid package. And it was all just tied up in, in, in the most dysfunctional politics of modern history is now not even a discussion. Um, so we're just gonna have to get through it. We're gonna have to get through it. And I can certainly wait to eat in the dining room. I will say um, in the middle of the summer, you know, we were had to drive across country to drop our kids off at colleges. And, mm-hmm. you know, there were moments where like the only alternative was to eat inside of our, there was no nowhere else to eat. Yeah. In the corner of our, you know, and we did because we had no choice. And it was yeah. certainly uncomfortable. Worked out okay. Um, you know, several months later, I can say that, but I, I don't see any reason. If you have alternatives to risk, to risk it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if there is gonna be no government support, you know, for restaurants, really, um, or like not even enough to help restaurants survive. I mean, so many have closed down already there at least needs to be something where, you know, restaurant workers or people in the hospitality industry are able to get the vaccine, um, you know, yeah, earlier than, mm-hmm. I guess, like the general public. Yeah, I, I was thinking that that would make a lot of sense. And certainly there, there are people, you know, coming up with these lists of strategies and, and uh, who, sh- who should be first in line. Certainly people with public-facing jobs um, should should be because if you want to keep, keep this sort of a economic engine sort of moving forward, mm-hmm. uh, people should not feel they're at risk by going to work. Yeah, they shouldn't. And, yeah, the last the last the last time I wrote about this, and I don't know I don't know if we spoke again. Yeah, we did. I spoke with a bartender who had come back to work, and she got COVID from the Trump campaign at her hotel because they kept coming up to the bar without masks on um, during the election. And they, it was a super spreader at the hotel. And this is the people who ended up at the Four Seasons, you know, photo landscaping <laughs> news conference. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, so it's like this: the, the risks are uh, legitimate and real. And I, and I know you're aware of this too, because you have colleagues, you know, who've been exposed. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a very scary thing, and I think the people in the restaurant industry are working so much harder than I think we ever had to do. Um, And it's not just, you know, creating a great experience. It's also trying our best to keep everyone as safe as we possibly can. Um, And it's been, it's been hard, but um, you know, we just have to work through it Yeah. because if not, you know, the restaurant industry and industries alike will, will fail. Um, and I've, I've, I've always just keep on saying it in my head, just like the government needs to do something about it. Um, yeah, they do. They do. And I, and I don't even know, to be honest, if, um, the way sort of the restaurants act, I don't think it would apply to a large company like, like star, for example, but, uh, in general for an industry, you know, you have all these small businesses that are just desperately, but there's mm-hmm. every step of the chain needs help. You know, you need yeah. you need the protections against evictions, and then you need rent relief, and then the people who own the properties need relief from you know you know their banks, and like it's we're also interconnected. Yeah. Uh, so, when, so when pieces start to fail, the whole thing. But you talk about the hospitality industry, so massively far-reaching in terms of the lives and people that are employed in this industry, um, and I think it's been really hard to see uh, people who are trained to be up for hospitality to have to suddenly become behavior police. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, with, with people who are uncooperative and selfish, I mean, you're always going to deal with selfish people in the restaurant business when you're talking about the public, right? But it's like another, now it's politicized and it's at this other level. Um, and I think a lot of people are not equipped to deal with bartenders and whatnot. You know, they, you guys, people are not equipped to sort of, you know, keep people in line you're not bouncers yeah that's the thing i it's funny i i went up to a manager the other day and i was just like i feel like a bouncer at this door (laughs) you know it's just like not only am i you know 
taking people to their seats, but I'm literally just being a behavioral police officer. You know, for me, it's just like people shouldn't leave their house without a mask. Just put it on if you want to eat. It, this is just super simple, but it's not that simple. People are so much more complicated than that. Um, well, have you it, encountered people who refuse to put on masks? For sure, no doubt. And what, how does that how does that interaction go? Um, well, I say, do you mind just putting on a mask? Some people will refuse to do it. They say this virus is fake. That you know why do I need to put on a mask if we're outside? Um, and I think, I mean, generally I say, if you don't put it on, then we can't serve you, you know? And, and there you have it. That's, that's the, right. Whether or not you're going to dine with us or not. Yeah. Cause so, I guess their, their first amendment rights to wear a mask or not their fake first amendment rights to wear a mask do not apply <laughs> on private property. Right. Right. And that's the thing. It's like, this is a private, this is a private business. You, you're deciding to dine at a private business and the private business has the rules and you have to follow right. them. But Camille, I wonder, have you found that over this, the duration of this, that those, those resistors have di have diminished. I mean, I know in June when they opened up outdoor dining, we were, I was encountering this personally quite a bit, you know, just as a diner. But had, had people fallen in line a little bit more? You, you think? For sure. I mean, I think for the most part, in general, most people are okay with it, and I think most people have fallen, you know, in line. And and most people, I most people aren't an issue. It's very few people that are the issue. Yeah. Um, but you encounter so many people at where you work that it's you yeah. come you come across all sorts. A very yeah. entitled and it's a very entitled <laughs> seg segment of the dining public, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. But I I think I think for the most part, people have fallen in line and don't give you an issue, but it's just really frustrating when the people when people don't. Um and we just work through it, uh, but it, it is sort of just where we have to, where the hospitality industry, what it's come to and what we have to do to survive. Right, right. Uh, but we're getting, we're getting there. I'm confident, I'm confident yeah. there's gonna be, there is light and uh, I'm, a city like Philadelphia will rebuild. I think right now, it's so cold outside. It's hard to gauge people's enthusiasm, <laughs> uh, but I think it's, I know it's there. And, um, and I know, I know people are going to come back. Uh, to yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, the workers at restaurants are still showing up. They're still giving you a, the best experience that they possibly can give you. Yeah. Um, and I think people still enjoy that. And I think some people are really thankful, you know, that, the restaurant industry workers are still doing the best yeah. that they possibly can do. Yeah, um, and it's incredible to see, I think restaurant workers still, you know, despite everything still work as hard as they do. Um, yeah. It's inspiring. I mean, I think people are, you know, grateful to have work um, yeah. right now and people are doing what they have to do, but I've had a lot of interactions with people in restaurants who, um, you know, they just, you can just see they're, they're wearing their mask, but they are just itching to tell you about this great bottle of wine that goes with this new dish the chef created. They're just so excited about it. And, I, and that is an interaction that I miss uh, mm -hmm. more frequently, you know, because I think, I think there's so much talent right now that's being kind of, you know, stifled a little bit by the circumstances. But um, yeah, it's, 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 it's coming. It's coming. Yeah. Hope people hang on. I am definitely, I mean, I have a lot of hope and I, I think with a, a Senate that, you know, that is majority on one side that, you know, didn't call this virus a hoax. I think they, um, I have lot, lots of hope that we'll, we'll get back to, to a normal time and it'll never be the same, but as normal as we could get. And I hope that it's pretty soon. And I have a lot of hope for that. Um, at least by the summer, maybe. But yeah, we'll see. Amen, Camille. Thank you so much for joining me.
It's my honor. I really appreciate you reaching out to uh, to schedule this. Of course, thank you so much. I mean, it it's an honor to have you on here. Um, your reviews are incredible to see and incredible to read. It's great journalism, thank and you, I Camille. I love to read what you do. And um, thank you for showing me around the city, sort of. <laughs> That's the ultimate compliment that I could get. <laughs> thank Take you so care, much. Camille. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you all so much for joining me on this episode of Take Two. Again, I'm your host, Kamel Jones. See you next time. Bye.